Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a podcast about our history and culture and how Star Trek relates to it. The following podcast is made up of two panels recorded live at the Destination Star Trek convention in Birmingham in October 2018. Please note that sound quality may vary from time to time. This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Good afternoon, people. Have we had a wonderful afternoon? Good. You can move down closer. They won't bite. That's my job. So our next toast, our lovely talk and our lovely guest, hosted by Duncan. I shall pass over the proceedings over to him. But we have one man who, or one person, who's going to beam in later. He's on a mission. So he'll be with us as soon as he can. And I shall hand over to our host. Hello, thank you all for coming and welcome to Primitive Culture Live. This is a first for us. We've been doing this podcast uh, for getting on for a couple of years now, but it's fantastic to actually be doing it here on stage in Birmingham and in front of all of you and to have an audience for once as opposed to just a couple of us. Um, Primitive Culture, for those of you who don't know, is a Trek FM podcast uh, set up by myself and Tony Black here and these days hosted by me and Clara Cook. Lee is one of our frequent guests. Uh, Lee is from the Nerd Party Podcast Network. Tony is from the Xcast and uh, Set the Tape Entertainment website. Uh, so, so all these guys are kind of frequent contributors to this podcast. Uh, but this is a new experience for us, doing one of these in front of an audience. Um, and we're supposed to be joined by Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechek, who you can see we've, we've reserved quite a place for, but he seems to have... Uh, on AWOL on a away mission, so we'll see whether he beams in at some point in the next 25 minutes or not. Let's, let's hope Larry can make it. Hopefully he doesn't need any introduction, so he can just slot in. Our podcast basically looks at Star Trek and the kind of influences on Star Trek's writers particularly. It's called Primitive Culture because of the line in First Contact, obviously, where Deanna Troy refers to kind of 21st century Earth as a primitive culture. And really it's looking at the kind of historical, cultural, literary, uh, cinematic influences on Star Trek and how those things are woven into Star Trek stories. Here is Dr. Trek himself beaming in. (laughs) He was delayed. And an infestation of tribbles. <laughs> Larry, it's good to see you. <laughs> We've got a chair for you right here. 
Larry, it's good you could join us. Larry, of course, from the Next Generation Companion, the Trek Files podcast, uh, uh, an expert on Star Trek in all its many forms, and we're delighted to have him over here in the UK with us. So our topic for today is a pretty broad one. I think it says up there, um, Star Trek and history. We decided we'd zero in a little bit uh, and try and do Star Trek and World War II, which, you know, it, even so in half an hour, I think it's going to be a bit of a stretch, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Because uh, certainly World War II is something that has had a massive influence on Star Trek, even going back right to the beginning uh, from the 1960s. I thought, Larry, maybe we could start off by talking a little bit about the way that Star Trek, the original series, was influenced by World War II uh, in terms of the members of uh, cast and crew who had actually served in that war and how that impacted on it. Well, right. The, the primary influence of World War II on Star Trek is the fact that Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and Matt Jeffries, the designer of the Enterprise, and a lot of the guys on the crew from top to bottom, that whole generation were influenced by... You know, the 30s and the Depression and, and the war, and then the way they rebuilt the world to try to avoid the mistakes after World War One, and the United Nations, and hopefully that optimistic, the optimistic future going forward. That we've we've seen the worst of humanity, you know, and we're living with this new scary thing, the bomb, and we've got to do better as we move forward, or we'll kill ourselves, right? And, but they they'd all been to the war, but they were all veterans of military service. And they, they had a real cutting-edge sense of life and death. It wasn't an abstract. And, uh, yeah, you, you can't fault them. On one hand, it's like the design of the Enterprise and the fact that they brought all the nautical, Air force you know, feeling to the space service of the Starfleet. But then it's the subtext to the stories that was informing. You see that in Gene, both of the genes writing, you know. So, of course, James Dewan, famously a hero of the oh, D-Day sorry, yes. things, you know, yes. and uh, eagle-eyed viewers of the original series, you know, have always been looking out for that missing finger that you can see that was shot off, uh, I think, a couple of days after D-Day. Right, right. Lost, lost it on D-Day, right. Oh, was it on D-Day? Yes, oh, yes. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. His unit, I think they were, they were, is Juno the Canadian beach? What's that? Yeah. Was yeah, Juno, yeah. okay, <laughs> okay, yeah, on Juno Beach, with the Canadians, yes. Mm. Um, but many of the themes that actually take place in the actual stories of Star Trek, um, in terms of, like, for instance, Deep Space Nine with the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, are actually inspired by World War II, World War II history. And why do you think they decided, like, why is Star Trek so obsessed with World War II? Uh, well, okay, in, in the 60s and then onward, I don't know, you have you know, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis are like the perfect villain. <laughs> I, mean, this, I mean, I guess 100 years before it was Napoleon, although even even more to a degree Hitler. I mean, there was so many atrocities. If you need an obvious, you know, from the swastika to the handlebar, whatever it was, they're just such an obvious go-to symbol that everyone could agree on. And then that, the original 60s group were so, that was their generation. It was just so so affected by that. It was not going to, the imprint, the effect was not going to go away. It was not going to disappear. It's just been a very easy go-to. That, yeah, the Voyager, you know, Killing Game and, and on down the line, even years later, it was just an easy go-to, I think. And even from the original series, you had that quite shocking episode where you have basically the Nazi planet. And I also, it's very interesting, you have Kirk and Spock, you know, and William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, both from Jewish families, having to dress up in these Nazi uniforms. Only 
you, you know, whatever it is, like 15, 20 years after the, 20 years, I suppose, after the war, it's quite recent memory at that stage, and it must have been a very tough thing for them to do, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing I always think of that with this, especially where Star Trek's obsession with the Nazis and Nazi Germany is that you have season three of Enterprise, which is pretty much all about 9-11, follows that all the way through the season. And then their last moment of the season is, right, let's go back to the World War II. They just never seem to escape using Nazis. And I always find that absolutely ridiculous. And um, I had a German friend that told me that she loved Star Trek. You know, Star Trek's incredibly popular in Germany, but their representation every time they saw Germany or their culture was reduced down to space Nazis, Nazi holograms, Nazi planets. It was crazy. Alien Nazis. Or, or alien Nazis, alien which Nazis. was the whole huge twist of Enterprise. Oh, look, they're not just regular Nazis. There's alien Nazis, too. Yeah. It's partly, yeah. I suppose, the alien Nazis, it's kind of... I always think of that as Branham Braga's kind of big kind of F you, like, right, solve this one. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm done with this show. Here's this great image. It's this kind of, like, you know, really sort of iconic image. Uh, I'm out. Someone else can work out what on Earth the storyline is. But it is an amazing end to that season. I think, actually, if you look at season three of Enterprise, uh, the Second World War has fed into that much more already in a different way. And one of the things that I think is quite interesting about that season is you start off with this very kind of explicit 9-11 allegory and it takes Star Trek into this very dark area to the extent that uh, a lot of people on the show as well as a lot of fans were uncomfortable with it. I mean, um, uh, the actor who played Dr. Fox, for example, so he was getting anxious. He was thinking, is this really Star Trek? We seem to be kind of taking this quite militaristic, quite sort of hawkish line. Um, but by the end of that season, because of the character of Degra, who is explicitly um, modelled on Oppenheimer in the Second World War and kind of embodies all this idea, this kind of later idea about the guilt associated with the atom bomb and so on, this idea of creating this terrible weapon and, you know, and the kind of moral complexity of that, that they almost managed to use the Second World War as a way of kind of getting back into Star Trek somehow, getting out of this kind of post-9-11 influence and into this historical influence where... Uh, you know, as much as there is that kind of guilt associated with the weapon, it's kind of like we're slightly rewriting what this story is about. Um, Tony, we talked a little bit about Oppenheimer way back in our the very first primitive culture that we did, actually, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We uh, we were making a lot of comparisons to particularly Jetrel, uh, Jetrel in uh, Voyager, and um, the and De- yeah, and Degra, and, and it was it was really reading a biography about Oppenheimer was really quite striking in just quite how Star Trek reflects the, the quite terrifying reality of what what happened with, with Oppenheimer with the bomb and things like this and it feels like then particularly Deep Space Nine um, I know I'm talking about Voyager and Enterprise in those two examples particularly Deep Space Nine feels like it's a show trying to figure out the fallout from the events of the Second World War, you know, and from I, I know the bomb was after the um, the the, the, Na- the Nazis essentially in terms of in, in Japan, but it, it feels like a lot of Star Trek is ultimately trying to work out why this happened and how we can progress from it. And Deep Space Nine, I think, especially does that more than any other show with the occupation of Bajor and the quite clear parallels with the Bajorans and the Jews, the Cardassians and the Nazis, and the way that in a cyclical fashion, what happens to the to the Bajorans ends up happening to the Cardassians later. So it, it, it's, I think it's it, the Second World War in particular is a continuing fascination with all these different shows. It's also, I suppose, the legacy of the war. It's, I mean, we were talking about this over lunch that 
it's not so much, although we see flashbacks to the Cardassian occupation, it's kind of interesting that it's over by the time the series begins. So even in the way that that story is constructed, it's about the legacy of the war in later years. It's about the legacy of the war going forward, about the guilt, about the, the anger, the hostility, all the kind of feelings that are left over after these kind of atrocities have taken place and so on. Uh, and that's what we're left with. Um, and Clara, we've talked a little bit about how Voyager as well in the 90s seems to be kind of obsessed with the Second World War and particularly the Holocaust and the kind of moral crimes of the war and kind of going back and investigating those crimes again and again. Yeah, I mean, there's that episode of Counterpoint where there are refugees that are hiding, that have to hide in the transporter system and that was directly influenced by the story of Anne Frank. So I do feel that Star Trek eventually goes from being uh, a franchise that explores the experience of soldiers in war to the experience of civilians in war. And DS9 does that, and the episode Counterpoint does that as well. Like, Especially when you think of, for instance, uh, Kira's mother was the mistress of Golda Cat. That's like the jerry bags in the Channel Islands, or like the women in France who had slept with Nazis. Or the Japanese and the or Chinese. Japanese yeah, com- which yeah, Chinese the primary, com- the primary one. They call them comfort women, I yeah. think. Yeah, that was... A- the uh, the other Voyager that I think of is um, is remember or remembrance where Balana stumbles in and she has the memories. It was a it was like a Nazi like horrible culture that had reformed, and they they were much more democratic now and more humane. But they were trying to erase completely the memory of their of their Nazi their whole you know, their their atrocities they committed. And this one elderly lady was trying to pass along her memory. No, I know the truth as a child. We have. We've not all been bright, shiny, happy, perfect people forever. And if we forget our truth, we'll, we'll be doomed to repeat it, right? Instead of confronting it. Like, like the German culture has pretty much embraced that and tried not to. I suppose that kind of ties into this 90s idea of, you know, never forgetting what happened and kind of, um, you know, really going over these stories and recording these stories. And I, I guess, you, you know, when you had, say, after... Um, when Schindler's List came out, I think Steven Spielberg set up this foundation to record kind of oral histories of the Second World War, to record people's first-hand experiences of the Holocaust, and this idea that by kind of recording individual lived experience, we can kind of, um, you know, not lose touch with what happened with these dark periods of our past. But yeah, I mean, what's terrifying about that Voyager episode is they've almost managed to do it. You know, they've reached a point where most of their society doesn't know what happened, and the ones that do won't speak about it. So it's a terrifying sort of look at you know how things could have been if if Germany had won the Second World War. That might be the world that we were all growing up in with a complete lack of awareness of what happened. And I feel like I'm going to be one of those Star Trek actors that forgets the episode name. Um, but the, there's an episode as well in Voyager where Belana Torres has the creature stuck to her, and they have the Cardassian as essentially. You know, a portrayal of a Nazi. Do we, yeah, nothing human. And we, do we use the knowledge of kind of war criminals and Nazis? And that was a huge part of sort of the NASA space project. The amount of Nazis that came over, you know, informed how we moved forward in society with technology, with the space project, with the early Apollo missions. In one, one original series, the one that I, I thought of first, we always go to patterns of force. But City on the Edge of Forever. The whole pivot point is, does Edith keep us out of World War II or not? And if, she, and if we, we stay pacifist too long, and then we're overtaken too, and then that's what changes the timeline. And nothing wonderful ever happens because, we become, because Germany wins the war. Right? One of the things that interests me about that, though, and I think City on the Edge of Forever is the starting point of this, but you see in all these other episodes that we're talking about, 
He's as much a Star Trek for 50 years. He's been obsessed with the Second World War and we're dealing with the legacy of it, whether allegorically or directly, or well, maybe not directly, but by you know putting aliens in Nazi uniforms or whatever. The one thing we never do in this franchise where we have time travel, we go to different time periods. We never actually time travel into the Second World War. We go into other periods, but when we deal with the Second World War, it's in the... <laughs> well, it might not even be in the battles, but like, so we're seeing it on the holodeck in the killing game, we're seeing a recreation of it. We're in City on the Edge of Forever. Yes, it's kind of a Second World War story, but it's set in the 1930s. It's, it's exactly, you know, every time we do it, we find a way of just slightly skirting around it. And I do wonder whether there's something that Star Trek is like repeatedly fascinated with this topic. But still, there's a slight hesitation to actually go there and get right into it in that kind of historical sense. It's always got to be reinterpreted. It's always got to be kind of processed in one way or another. So the question I have, and I'm going to address this at Tony because I know you were talking about it earlier, is we've been talking about all the different Star Trek series, but we haven't really talked about Next Generation. And it doesn't seem like there is much World War II history or influenced stories in The Next Generation. I want to know why. Well, in broad terms, The Next Generation feels a little different in the sense that it's almost like trying to look forward as opposed to looking back. You've also got the fact that it's being produced around the time of the end of the Cold War, and you see that reflected in things like the Klingon Civil War in particular, and, you know, Redemption, those episodes, where it's all about trying to figure out, you know, who's going to be in charge, who's, how is the system, you know, this, this paradigm going to work, and that obviously affects the Federation, affects the Klingon Empire, You've also got more focuses on things like the Borg as a villain, as opposed to, you know, Nazi Cardassians or, you know, the kind of staunch races that Voyager would often come across. And the Borg represents the fear of AIDS, the, the viral contagion that, the, the, you know, was a particular fear in the 1980s. Um, and, you know, that collectivization. So I feel like the next generation is more concerned with where we're going as opposed to where we've been. And that's not to say there aren't any particular parallels with the Second World War in that show, but they, I think they're much, much less overt than the majority of the rest of the Star Trek TV series. But then we do kind of return to it in Discovery, don't we? Because there is this very, um, like, sort of totalitarian like Klingon leader isn't there um, and his, his, rhetoric, his rhetoric is very dogmatic it's, it's very much like a cult of this particular leader who talks about expanding into space rather than uh, expanding onto other worlds and that's very much like Hitler sort of going out and saying we need space and room isn't there a quote from the Undiscovered we Country? We need breathing room in, in the Undiscovered Country yes you have this association in both those uh, stories of the Klingons as this kind of uh, empire that wants to grow and conquer and is, you know, has something in common with uh, the Nazis. Uh, uh, it struck me watching those first episodes of Discovery. I know a lot of people found the uh, performance of the actor who was going to Kuvma uh, a little bit hard to swallow, partly because there was a lot of Klingon and partly because he spoke very slowly. It was very kind of stylized the way he was speaking, certainly compared to, say, even how Mary Chifo performs the Klingon in Discovery. But I sort of wondered if that was a deliberate choice, and it put me very much in mind of the way Hitler spoke at the, you know, either the Nuremberg rallies or something. I mean, there are recordings of Hitler speaking like a normal, I mean, I say normal, you know, like, like a, a speaking with, 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 a, with a conversational yes. German accent. But obviously, most of what we see of Hitler is this, you know, totally kind of uh, over-the-top rhetorical kind of bombastic style of delivery that is quite unusual. And I wonder whether Takuma was kind of playing into that. And certainly, a lot of his rhetoric, you know, talking about um, 
the Vulcans and the Tellarites, these sort of species that he finds uh, repellent and disgusting. Uh, and there's something about the language there. It, you know, it feels very racist. It feels very much in that kind of mould. And with Tegutmer, of course, there's also that element that he is not noble. He's not of the nobility. And you have that in Germany with Hitler. You know, Hitler was not from the aristocracy. He was not the kind of guy he was supposed to lead. He was a populist. You know, he was, I suppose you could say, he's he like Trump. Even, or he was even German. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's like someone who the old guy looked down their noses at and underestimate as a result. And then he comes and he, you know, leads this huge popular movement to devastating effect. Larry, do you have any more thoughts on, on <laughs> discovery? Sorry, I'm going to put you on the I, spot there. Well, I've gone from realizing all of these... Uh, I mean, you all have done some episodes on this, but I had not thought, I mean, I, the obvious ones pop up, but thinking about the range and depth and how many times either overt or just subtle kind of parallels to all these all these themes arising from World War II and the buildup and the cultures involved and the, the, the pre-war, the war, and the aftermath and, the, and all that, just realizing how much it has resonated, I had to stop to think about it. Almost equally then to say... And it's not really the next generation. That's why I've been sitting here a few minutes. Oh, come on. There's got to be a, war, a World War II wrinkle in all of 178 episodes. But it really is. That is, that is kind of fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if we're being maybe tenuous with the Borg, that there has been parallels drawn that is the, the Japanese and the rise of technology. But essentially, the Borg are carrying out a Holocaust. They come, they rip up your land, they take your people, they wipe them out, they make them their own. I mean, that's probably the most tenuous next generation. But... I mean, the next generation really is a piece in our time that they speak about in kind of the Star Trek sixes. So, you know, it, it's less so, I think, perhaps there for that reason. I, I think as well, the Borg is, and it's kind of what I was saying earlier, is a, is a, is a latent fear of, of communism, in a way, of collectivization, of this idea of becoming, you know, and this, this is a deep American fear that was there during, particularly during the Reagan era, even though, you know, it was starting to fade away in terms of the end of the Cold War. It was still, you know, we've got to remember the next generation partly was being made in that era and it kind of existed in that transition point from the Cold War, which obviously was the, 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 the effect of the Second World War. You know, that's what came after for the next 50 years. So it, maybe it's because the next generation operates in a different space, whereas DS9 is coming off, off the back of that. It's, you know, it's been produced a year or two after the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union. Maybe it feels like it has more of the space to explore the, the you know, the, the, the guilt around... World War II, you know, particularly from the American perspective that it did when they were in the middle of the Cold War or towards the end of it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we talked a lot about the war in terms of the kind of darker side, guilt, the Holocaust, you know, atrocities and so on. There is also the aspect of the Second World War, which is more what you see often in kind of war films, the kind of heroism, the idea that this is a just war and therefore we can really celebrate the kind of military exploits. Uh, and of course, you do see that as well. I mean, you, you know, in some ways you could say an episode like The Killing Game, Yes, it's about the Second World War, but it's a bit of a romp. It's kind of having fun with the idea. When you get to DS9, you have um, the Battle of Britain. I mean, sadly, we never get to see it. That, that would have been a, a great, you know, they, if they did have the budget, and you'd get to oh, actually right, right, see right. O'Brien and Bashir, you know, flying their Spitfires. But we get to hear a little bit about it. We see them in those uniforms. And I suppose we get this idea that because they're, like, deeply meshed in the Dominion War, which is such a kind of gritty, grim, miserable, awful experience... Um, somehow, the Second World War seems kind of 
safe from that perspective. On the other hand, you could say, you, you know, the, the point that they're uh, showing there, the Battle of Britain, was a point where, you know, things could have gone the other way. It was a desperate, desperate fight. Unfortunately, they prevailed. You know, the, the Bashirs and the O'Briens up there in their planes managed to carry the day and hence sort of began the process of us, you, you know, pulling back from the brink in a way. But it definitely it feels like when you look at that, it's kind of, it's fun. It's a game. They're playing it as a game. Yeah, well, it, so getting into DS9 in the Dominion War, when I did stellar cartography, the one thing that I was proud of out of that, the biggest thing I was proud of is that I felt like I choreographed the Dominion War because the writers, sure, they had these vague notions. And even even uh, Mike and Doug in the art department, when they would do those charts, they're nothing, I mean, they make, they're just gibberish because no one wanted to tackle any kind of real geography aside from Obeja and Cardassia are close to each other. But every time they would talk about, here's the Dominion threatening the whole worlds, or they would try to get somewhat specific, or Bolius, uh, Beta Zed's taken over, uh, uh, I forget, I can't go back, it's either Benzar or Bolius have been conquered, and they're always talking about Vulcan and Earth are being threatened. And then to actually put that on the, you know, it's retconning, but there was kind of a sketch of things, Mike Kuda had done the basic layout, and we were trying to fill that in, and one of the things I wanted to do was make sense of it. In the world, there was a little bit of a, a first Persian Gulf Iraq war bit, but every other metaphor that I kind of drew on, the Atlantic side, the Atlantic theater and Europe really fit the Dominion War. And we have the Cardassian Bajor over here and the homeworlds were over here and the Klingons and Romulans. And even talking about Klingon convoys being, you know, attacked by Dominion patrols, that it was a lot like the, the Atlantic, the Battle of the Atlantic, you know, the U-boats. But there was one, the one big battle at the cliffhanger, and I've gone blank, a call to arms, and then, the, and then the, the, they don't know, they all go off. And then the season returns with the, a few ships limping home, you know, that opening shot. Nothing is ever said about that momentous battle when they lost, like, hundreds of ships. And I basically located it, but I, I just got into this whole uh, U.S., Canada, and then Britain and France, and the Atlantic is in between, and some of the memes fit, and I was able to make a lot of those those subplots of the Dominion War fit with different things. But one of the biggest ones was thinking about the Atlantic, and there is a gulf, but had they broken through around where the siege of AR-558, I've forgotten the, the sector name, a lot of that fighting was happening down there, but it was like if they had broken through there, then it was a little bit like the Iraq War, where if they broke once they broke through the, the, the border, they could have had a straight run into Baghdad. And there's nothing really between that area and the homelands. And so that was my goal. Anyway, World War II, even for, for me, and I know a lot of the guy like Dayton and Kevin and some of the authors that do novels, that's not Eric Cannon, but the World War II themes come up to, as useful storytelling items there because they kind of fit with this vibe we're talking about. They just they just get in, yeah. Um, so we only have five minutes left, but before we, we go, is it possible for the audience to ask questions? I was wondering that, yeah. Does anyone have any questions that they'd like to ask? Either about World War II or history more generally in Star Trek. Well, to make any questions. <laughs> it's a mic roving as we speak. Uh, what do you think the main differences in um, sort of like Star Trek? The old ones that maybe were actually were in World War Two versus 
than ones that maybe haven't worked all after it and are working on uh, history or do you mean the actors, or do you mean the people actually making the show? Uh, uh, making it. I so, you, you got the question. I, I think he was asking, um, what's the difference between people that were involved at the start that had been connected to World War II, and now we don't have people that live that generation. I think yeah. one, one of the, probably the biggest ones is it's 9-11. That seems to be what's been really the past decade plus for people is that has been the origin of so much debate and discussion and then you now have things with populist movements in, in Europe and America and that's where these people are drawn from so I think it's only probably right that the writers are drawn from what they're seeing in the world now as much as the original kind of writers did that's that's my feeling on it I would say also though that maybe, maybe one way of looking at it is this kind of preoccupation with guilt I mean certainly if you look at say an episode like Jutrell which was, uh, you know, deliberately timed for the 50th anniversary of the dropping of the atom bomb. And it's very much uh, connected to this idea, which, I mean, when Tony and I looked into it, we discovered, partly through reading biographies in Oppenheimer and so on, that it slightly exaggerated the extent to which Oppenheimer felt guilty. I mean, Oppenheimer actually felt that he probably did the necessary thing, that, you know, yes, it, it, he felt ambivalent about it, but he wasn't this kind of guilt-wracked scientist that we like to present him as. And, you know, when Star Trek presents this Oppenheimer story, it's, it's very much in that mould. There's an X-Files episode, I think, that does the same thing, talks about Oppenheimer uh, as this kind of, you know guilt-wrapped kind of man who can't sleep because of the awful thing that he's done. Uh, and in fact, I think that is kind of almost an invention of history. That we, That's how we feel like he ought to have felt. That's sort of how we feel on some level. And particularly in the 90s when it was this kind of anniversary period. I think looking back on the Second World War, it seemed like the writers were very much interested in the kind of the, the guilt, certainly on the Nazi side, looking at the Holocaust, but also the guilt that maybe we all share to some extent, or that all our pictures share. We have another question. Hi. Um, what about the Mirrorverse? Do you think that could be a parallel to World War II? Because in Discovery, I think it feels fairly obvious. And then in later seasons, especially Deep Space Nine, again, it's the humans, the Terrans, are being enslaved and stomped on and... I can't remember by who I was seeing, haven't seen these baseline until I was about, since I was about 13. I, th I think there's a definite with the, uh, the mirror universe. It was... You've got it, Lynn. Um, I think there was a definite uh, attempt in Discovery to, as much as draw the comparison between the Terran Empire and the Nazis, draw the comparison between the Terran Empire and the modern day, particularly in the latest... Story. I don't think it was quite the same in previous Terran Empire episodes. I think that was much more about Nazism. I think that was much more about the old, particularly the old level of fascism, the, the Terran Empire. It was almost like the other question, I suppose, of what would the far future look like if the Nazis had won, in a way, you know? And whereas I think now it's, in terms of discovery, a cautionary tale about if we continue a particular moral slide and continue, you know, losing a lot of the values we have in that current modern day, what kind of world are we going to end up with in 2250 
Whatever that was. Don't remember the exact year. Pornography of the Mirror Universe and Discovery, I think, is very Second World War. You know, the big banners and the kind of, you know, if you think of like uh, Hitler's rallies and all this kind of thing, all this kind of fascist blend, for want of a better word, is kind of in there one way or another. But I agree totally that it's kind of trying to marry that with more contemporary ideas as well. And, and, and you know, I suppose to draw parallels between where we are in the world right now and, and where the world went. Uh, you know, back then. I don't know, have we got time for one more? One more quick question? Yeah, one more yeah, question. Yeah, one more question. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. We do have time. Hi, I'm hoping this comes out in the form of a question. I'm horrendously dyslexic, so I have to have write this down. But I find it really interesting your portrayal of the, the running theme of World War II within Star Trek. It feels like you've presented it very negatively and as a negative obsession. Whereas when writers write, as we know, they write about what they know, their own experiences and their feelings. And perhaps a lighter way to look at it would be to see each series or each episode as a kind of Aesop's fable, a warning. Like, I just liked what you just said was very to the point of kind of what I'm getting at. But really, what's happened here is you've gone on a lot about fascist Nazis this, Nazis that. It's all the Nazis. And it kind of feels a bit, what? <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the fact that we nitpick the show, especially on our podcast, doesn't mean that we don't love Star Trek. We nitpick it because we love it. You know, I think the thing is, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. Star Trek is a utopia. It's not a dystopia. And there are plenty of dystopian shows out there that you can watch if you want to see a dystopia. But Star Trek is a more hopeful but, like, vision of the future. I think the thing is that... Star Trek does address these difficult issues, though, because you have, sometimes you have to actually understand where you've come from in order to understand where you're going or understand where you want to go. And I think that's one of the reasons why it does actually address World War II, because as the generations go by, you know, the history gets further and further away and it becomes less relevant to generations being born in the future. Uh, the history gets mythologized, it gets forgotten, it gets told in different ways. So you have to remember what happened and where we came from in order to build a better future. And I hope also that we don't come across as, as too negative. I mean, not only do we all love Star Trek, but uh, certainly speaking for myself, I love all the episodes that we've been talking about. I think the Second World War, you know, whether it is the darker elements of the war, has inspired some of the best writing in Star Trek. I mean, the Cardassian occupation as a kind of, you know, ongoing uh, story thread is one of the richest, most interesting, actually most complex that you get uh, in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah duet, for one thing. Exactly, but it's all the way through to the occupation of the station in the sixth season, which, for my money, is the best run of episodes in Star Trek history. Those, you know, those six episodes, or seven episodes, I suppose, uh, are an amazing artistic achievement and, you know, absolutely indebted to the history of the Second World War and to kind of reconsidering that and kind of reinterpreting it more. Well, I think probably uh, that might be about all we've got time for. Um, we've done our best to cram World War II into half an hour. If you tune into our podcast, we tend to go on for a lot longer. So uh, it's, it's Trek FM, uh, Primitive Culture is the name of the podcast. You can find us in iTunes uh, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Um, can I say real quick, if you haven't been by my table, come by and say hi. Uh, yes, Trek FM. I'm on Trek FM a lot with Chris on The Ready Room. And then I, on the Roddenberry Network, I have Trek Files every week on Tuesday. I don't know if we have any listeners, but uh, everybody's been great. So come by my table if you have a minute in between photo ops and things. And, uh, but thanks for having me on the panel. It's a pleasure. Yes. Thank you.
I, I was going to try to be poor with Roy as well, but you, you can look them up. Okay. Thank you very much. Afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, you won't know who I am, but you may know who this gentleman is. Um, my name is not Michelle Barrett, uh, as you may have already noticed. My name is Tony Black, and uh, this is author Duncan Barrett. This is talking about his um, book, The Human Frontier, and we both uh, run a podcast on the Trek and Film Network called Primitive Culture. So I don't know if any of you have listened to that or if you um, oh, three fans. So, it's a group um, so <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna uh, today. I'm stepping in and I'm uh, sort of uh, we're gonna leave a lot of the talking to Duncan really to discuss um, all the fascinating stuff in this book, um, the human frontier, and uh, all the Star Trek connections in that. So, Duncan, um, it's a great book. Why don't you tell everyone who hasn't read it necessarily what the human frontier entails? Sure, well, um, can everyone hear us at the back, just before we go on, you're okay there? Do come forward if you want to. Um, this is a book I wrote a very long time ago, initially, actually, back when I was a teenager. I co-wrote it with my mother, who was meant to be here as well, uh, but she's not, she's babysitting my son instead. So uh, that's why Tony valiantly uh, offered to step in to kind of do this kind of chat. Um, and Tony and I, as he said, hosted a podcast called Primitive Culture, uh, which Cara Cook was here and I now continue, which is kind of, um, sort of came out, in, in some ways I think of as a bit of a legacy of this book, because the book is really looking at Star Trek in a kind of historical, cultural, literary context. And again, that's kind of what we do on our podcast, uh, is, you know, looking at the kind of history that's inspired Star Trek, particularly that's inspired the writers. Um, so what I thought we could talk about today was to kind of zero in on one particular element of that, we're getting around it, which is the kind of nautical influence on Star Trek. Because I think people often talk about Star Trek as wagon trains to the stars, they talk about this kind of Western influence. And obviously that is there, that's very important, you know, you can see it uh, very unambiguously in episodes like uh, Fistful of Data, or North Star, where they literally dress up and do a kind of Wild West episode. You can see it in uh, maybe more subtle ways in, say, Deep Space Nine, the character of Odo, who feels like a kind of you know, small-town sheriff, in the idea of a final frontier, which is specifically kind of Western uh, language. But on the other hand, for me, uh, maybe this is partly as an English person who's maybe less invested in the kind of Western genre, um, there's this other huge influence on Star Trek right from the beginning, which is almost as important, if not more important, than the Western genre, and that's the world of nautical culture and nautical literature. Um, and it's there, it's right there back in the beginning. If you go back to the original pitch document, Star Trek Is, which Gene Roddenberry wrote in 1964, um, you will see this description of Star Trek as a wagon train type show, but you'll also see this description of the captain of the new show, uh, who was going to be Robert April, at that time captain of Yorktown, as uh, Horatio Hornblower in space. Hornblower, for anyone who doesn't know, was the hero of a series of novels written from, I think, the 1930s through to the 1960s. I think the latest of those novels were still being published while the original series was on the air but set uh, in the period of the Napoleonic Wars and that kind of sort of late 18th century, early 19th century naval campaigns. And it follows this um, character, Hornblower, who starts off as a sort of very lonely seasick midshipman and gradually works his way all the way up to Admiral. Um, and, and he was in some ways a kind of influence on Captain Kirk as well from the beginning. Uh, I think partly in terms of, and you can say all the Starfleet captains, 
in the way that he has this kind of real uh, sense of right and wrong, this real kind of commitment to his crew, to protecting his crew and so on. And that was something that was there uh, right from the start. And funnily enough, I found when I was kind of looking into this, I'm thinking where did Jim really get this idea for these kind of two key cultural uh, touchstones in dreaming up Star Trek? If you go back all the way a couple of years before um, that pitch document in 1964, back to 1962, uh, the famous speech that Kennedy gave, the, um, you know, we, we choose to go to the moon, not, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. He actually does exactly the same thing. I'm going to read a little bit um, from that speech because I was quite blown away by it. In that he basically describes the contemporary American space age again in terms of these two historical antecedents. On the one hand, the Wild West and the Old Frontier, who says, uh, who points out that the new space center, which is being built in Houston, Texas, he says, what was once the furthest outpost of the Old Frontier of the West will be the furthest outpost on the new frontier of science and space. But then he goes on in more kind of soaring, more kind of. Uh, you know, this kind of presidential oratory to describe uh, the mission to go into space very much in terms of that earlier exploration of the sea on Earth. He said, we set sail on this new sea because there is knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and it must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man, and only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new motion will be a sea of peace or a terrifying new fierce and war. And you can kind of see, I mean, obviously, if you watch the Richard series, you can see the influence of Kennedy on the character of Captain Kirk. I mean, by the time you get to uh, the famous Risk is Our Business speech, you've almost, you've kind of almost got Kennedy, uh, you know, on the British Enterprise somehow there. It feels like such a fun Kennedy moment. Um, but absolutely, this idea of kind of the sea of space and exploring space as analogous to exploring the seas of Earth was there right from the beginning. And it pops up in an interesting way. I'm sure some of you already know the story of the, the lyrics to the original series uh, theme music. That basically, Alexander Courage had written this music, um, and Gene Roddenberry somewhat unscrupulously uh, realised that if he wrote lyrics to go with it, he could put it into the contract that uh, Alexander Courage got paid 50% of what he would have been owed because 50% goes to the lyricists. So he wrote these lyrics knowing that they were never going to appear on the show. They were kind of, it was just a kind of contractual thing. But the lyrics that he wrote, again, kind of tie into this uh, idea of space as a sea to be uh, travelled. Uh, these are the lyrics that Rodney wrote. Again, uh, I don't know how much effort he put into them because he, he knew they were for no purpose other than he was singing them. Is that that you sing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to sing them, no, no. Uh, you'll have to imagine. <laughs> if Michelle Nichols is here today, you can ask her if, if, if she'll have a go at them. Um, but they go, Beyond the room of the starlight, my love is wandering in starflight. I know he'll find in star-clustered reaches love, strange love, a star woman teaches. I know his journey ends never, his Star Trek will go on forever, but tell him that while he sails his starry sea, remember, remember me. And I think, I mean, reading those lyrics, uh, you can see they were written by Gene Rodbury. Uh, <laughs> you can see, you know, in reference to the strange love of Star Wars teaches. And also this kind of fascinating idea that the way you're going to kind of pitch Star Trek is from the perspective of the jilted lover who's left at home when the captain is going off to, you know, have a conquest on every planet or whatever. It's a sort of interesting insight. 
But for me, really, it's that line, the starry sea really captures this idea of the kind of romance of exploring space as being connected with the, the romance of, um, of exploring the sea and Earth's history. And that, for me, is a kind of a little glimpse, again, into how pervasive this idea was to start it, not just as a Western, but as a kind of nautical story. I suppose it's the, the myth of the American discussion of Star Trek, isn't it? You know, Gene created both from the Western genre, you know, the whole Latin train of stars, through, you know, to going back to things like Moby Dick, in Melville's classic story about Ahab and Great Way. Do you feel that it's a continuing sort of, you know, just a part piece of American ecology that's come through literature into science fiction? The interesting thing, I think, is that it's, I mean, initially it's not explicitly American, because if you think obviously the Western is an explicitly American genre, the nautical literature sort of goes back further, you know, something like Holder, who's in the, in the British Navy. You're right, though, the, the kind of, when you get into the more literary side of things, Moby Dick is like, is the big book, and it is sort of one of the big American books, so I suppose that does kind of make sense, that is kind of bringing this kind of American inflection on it. And of course, Moby Dick is a story that features many times as an influence in Star Trek, you know, most obviously uh, in the Wrath of Khan. Uh, where you, you have, interestingly, there's, um, in, in the Wrath of Khan, I was looking through the shooting script for the Wrath of Khan um, some time ago, and I noticed something which really jumped out to me, because in the Wrath of Khan, you have, obviously, Khan is pulling the role of this kind of Ahab-like character, Ahab in Moby Dick. Or not seeing Star Trek First Contact is this uh, captain who loses his leg to a white whale and also kind of loses his sanity at the same time and he's held there to the bed. And uh, Khan quotes various lines from that book that come out of Ahab's mouth um, when he's talking about the revenge he wants to get on her. So in a way, it, it, it's very much, you know, the film is very much about Khan revenging himself on her. When you look at the script, though, there's another whole level to it because. Uh, a large part of Moby Dick is devoted to this idea of this white whale, this kind of gleaming white presence, this sort of unnaturally uh, white being of the seas, and how kind of supernatural and otherworldly it is. And when you get to the shooting script of, um, of the Rough and Calm, there's a fascinating, uh, I should say stage direction, what do you call it, like an optical direction, a direction for the special effects team. Uh, I'll read it. It says, Scene 208, External Space Nebula. Reliant, motionless in the foreground, amid occasional flashes, now behind Reliant and from below, like a great whale rising from the depths, Enterprise rises vertically, slowly passing the unsuspecting enemy. So you've got even there in the script, which no one is going to, I mean, other than me, or you know, probably some of you to read, but it's certainly not going to be up there on screen. It's the explicit connection between, you know, having invoked a different story, to say the Enterprise is actually the white whale, and the Enterprise is this kind of gleaming white. Uh, you know, rounded sort of shape that is emerging from the depths of the nebula, like the whale emerging um, maybe did. So it's kind of, I don't know whether that was deliberate, I sort of kind of imagine it was, but if not, then it must be because that idea kind of seeped in that connection was a bit made. We've said a rapid car, obviously that was particularly a film where the nautical aspect of Star Trek really came back in, in cinematic terms. It was my really started with that. He said many times, didn't he, the 30 in the script and in the production is that he wanted it to be the Navy, the, the, the extension of the Navy, or the, the change in the uniforms and, and the terminology in Star Trek 2, which is much different from the motion picture. I don't know if that's a 
I'm interested in having that. Yeah, no, I, I think absolutely <laughs> right. You can, yeah, you can see that in the uniforms, you can see that in the kind of militarization of Starfleet in, in, in that film in various ways. And I always think, I mean, lots of people talk about the space battles in that film as influence on that film of being submarine warfare. I think that is absolutely there. You get the kind of um, intensity of submarine warfare. But you also get this idea of these ships kind of coming up alongside each other and launching these sort of barrages from side to side, which again is very much what you see if you go back to Hornblower or something. I mean, for anyone else who read the Hornblower novels, you can watch the, the TV series. It's great. It's a TV series in the 90s, the Hornblower novels. Um, it's absolutely that kind of, for me, that sort of old, older idea of naval battle, where it's all about like getting your ship in the right position in order to fire the cannons or whatever. Um, and it's there in the music as well. I think the music for the Rocket Park very much kind of picks up on that nautical uh, feel. Do you think that that was something that the movies and the television series reflected in quite the same way? Do you feel that the original series had those long moments in quite the same way that certainly the Rapid Khan and then, you know, sort of, to some degree, you know, Next Generation did. Do you feel it was approached in, in terms of what it was made for those movies? I think it kind of comes and goes. I mean, I'd say the only series that I feel... I would say in some ways Enterprise was maybe the least invested. I feel like every other series there, there are at least legacies of the kind of musical inspiration. So for example, uh, the Boston's whistle, you know, the whistle goes back in the movies. You get that in every Star Trek series. I think except for you do even get it in Enterprise one. Uh, so far, as far as I know, we haven't seen it in Discovery, there's still time. And even in Discovery, you know, going back up to date, you get new multiple terminology because they always talk about souls rather than lives. And the idea of speaking of the number of souls on board the ship that was destroyed, uh, you can trace uh, to the mid 18th century, I think, when that, that word started being used. And it was used specifically in a kind of naval context for the loss of lives at sea. So, all the way through Star Trek, the language has kind of been infused by this multiple culture. I mean, it's all linguistically is known as a naturalized metaphor or a dead metaphor because of the extent that most people watch it. Most of the time you're not even aware of it. So, you, you know, we just accept that all the ranks are basically naval ranks. We've got, you know, lieutenants, we've got commodores, we've got captains, we've got admirals, we've got all of this. Uh, that you go up onto the bridge if you're commanding a starship, that you give orders to the helm, that you, uh, that you hail another ship. You know, all the kind of terminology, all the way through is just uh, that there might be a landing party. All of this is, is totally kind of borrowed from the naval world, but it's kind of adapted to the extent that you almost don't even notice it. And I, you, you know, despite having written a book on this subject, and, uh, you know, 63 Star Trek for a lot of these kind of resonances, uh, a couple of weeks ago I was watching the episode um, Hero Worship, the next gen episode, in which there's the young uh, boy who's, who's sort of traumatised and he, he decides to uh, follow data around and pretend to be an android and so on. And there's a scene in that where things are kind of kicking off on the bridge, and Councilor Troy has there with it, says to him, Timothy, I think maybe we should go below. I mean, it's a tiny, like, it, it's, it's not foregrounded, it's just, it's just that tiny little bit of language, obviously, going below. I mean, they are literally going down from deck one to, you know, wherever. But the, the language is kind of specifically archaic. And I just think it's interesting that with Star Trek, which obviously is a science fiction show, we have all the kind of sci-fi jargon, you know, we have the Heisenberg compensators, we have the Hatton Buckles, we have, you know, telephone crystals, we've got all of that. But we've also got this huge um, 
linguistic debt to the uh, old naval traditions and to the old naval culture um, that plays out really throughout the series. And I mean, you were saying, is it, is it something that is more the case in the original series? I don't actually think that's true. I mean, I think if you look at an episode like Year of Hell in Voyager, Year of Hell is a relentlessly multiple episode. It opens in the astrometrics, uh, new astrometrics lab, and they're talking about how in the you know, in ancient Earth, um, ships would navigate by the stars and how they're using the same methods to navigate. You have Chakotay replicating the watch of the old naval captain for Janeway uh, and the story of this old naval captain who managed to get his ship home in one piece. Then you have sort of moving to the literary side of things. Uh, you, you've got this very strong connection between 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is another, you know, big kind of multiple novel, for the word. Um, and which we find out in another episode is one of Tom Harris's favourite novels, because uh, he says he used to grow up reading all these kind of sea stories. Um, because you've got this, uh, you know, the, the Prenim uh, leader, uh, Anorax, uh, his name is even taken with 2000 Leagues Under the Sea. The narrator of that novel is called um, Aramax. Nearly got that wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and there's a line where Tom Harris refers to him by this Captain Nemo out there. Captain Nemo being the captain of the Nautilus into which cast the eggs under the sea, who is kind of bent on revenge and does unspeakable things with his ship. His ship, which is also very long and pointy, just like that kind of Prenim uh, ship. And, and it kind of suffuses the whole storyline. There are references to the Mutual and the Bounty, there are references to the Titanic. It's kind of just almost relentless as this kind of subtext of this kind of undercurrent of that episode uh, that we are in this totally, we are basically totally in this nautical world. But like you were saying in the Rocket Park, and obviously it kind of comes and goes, but even up to the very end of um, that two part episode, if you think at the very end of the episode, Janeway says it's her right as captain to go down with the ship. Now, obviously, that's something we understand in Star Trek. It's also something that is, again, a naval tradition, this idea that captain goes down with the ship. And the way that she does it is she does exactly what Captain Nemo does in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. She takes her ship and she charges it as a battery ram into a vessel, and obviously, uh, with better results than he had. You know, Captain Nemo, unfortunately, uh, didn't have access to the magic reset button of the Voyager Rising team. Uh, so in his case, he sank the ship and all these people died, and it was a terrible tragedy. In Captain Stoneman's case, she uses the same technique and uh, you know, manages to kind of set history on a better trajectory. But absolutely, you know, that's an episode, I think, from beginning to end, is just suffused with this kind of multiple uh, influence. What about Enterprise? Because, obviously, Enterprise always feels like much more of a play on NASA, yeah. in this case, you know, the American world. Particularly America in terms of you know, get to the moon, get to Mars, and then the extension beyond that. Do you feel that the same you know, connection to all the to literature and to the North Classics is in Enterprise? I don't really. I mean, I think there are the odd lines. There's, there, there's a description of. I think there's like the odd line about weighing ankles. I mean, some of the terminology is there, but it's used much less frequently. And you sort of, it, it's more of a stretch to find those kind of multiple examples in Enterprise. There is one quite nice scene in the. Um, I think it's the first season, there's the episode Civilization, where they, uh, they go down to this planet and, they, and it's, quite, it's a sort of, um, you know, a sort of pre-industrial society. It's kind of old, an older society, basically, more, more like sort of Earth of the past. And they do zoom in on the kind of harbour area of the town they're focusing on and they see an old sailing ship there. So there's that kind of reference to it, but it's very much in the context of something that's in the past. And I do think that Enterprise 
was going for something very different to the previous Star Trek. Uh, you know, it was quite a departure. They were very much more inspired by NASA. They, they talked about Enterprise as being a sequel to now rather than a prequel to Star Trek. And I think in the same way, weirdly, it, 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 it's, a, it's a kind of sequel on a smaller scale, if you know what I mean. So the, the kind of uh, material that they're borrowing from is narrower somehow than, than Star Trek has had historically. And I think that's true of Enterprise generally. I think you, you, you probably find less uh, influence of you know, Shakespeare or you know, other kind of cultural touchstones have always worked their way in Star Trek storylines. Enterprise seems to be much more focused on the here and now. You know, the big influence on Enterprise, obviously, is 9 11. You know, when you get to the third season, they're totally contemporary. You know, something that's happened only a year or two earlier. And I think that's part of what differentiates Enterprise from other Star Trek in some ways is the almost this sort of separation from the past, from the cultural legacy of the past. Yeah. Just with you, are we allowed to take any questions from anyone? Is that, is that, do anyone have any questions uh, about any of the Thank you very much. Um, really interesting to see the new school comparisons. Have you ever come across when you're exploring the book any links between uh, being kind of lost at sea and lost in space? Have you ever any kind of clear examples of that that you might come across the book or after the writing of the book? Well, I guess uh, Voyager, obviously, you could say it's a ship lost at sea. Uh, I, I don't think in the real world whether there's anything that could like. Uh, it was to be like a storm or something that swept you all the way to the other side of the globe. So you had a kind of huge journey to come back. But definitely, um, you know, that idea. Well, one thing you get in Voyager is you get this idea of being, uh, I think they talk about it in the episode night, um, where they're in this expansive starless space and kind of psychological impact that has on the crew. You know, you have a captain becoming very depressed, you have uh, Neelix having these kind of panic attacks as a result. Um, and they sort of talk about the psychological impact of being in the car if you're a sailing ship. Which uh, still is slightly different because Voyager is still moving, it's just they can't help them moving because there's no reference for it. But, but you know, for a ship at sea to be becalmed is a kind of very eerie and very uh, sort of alienating experience somehow because you're, you're totally at the mercy of the elements. Because there's nothing in that situation, you know, if the wind drops completely, there is nothing you can do other than wait for things to change. Um, and I suppose the sea is, you know, like space, it's a very dangerous place. You know, you fall overboard, unless you're lucky, you, <laughs> you might not make it back onto the ship, just as like if you go out, if you go out the airlock, you know, you're out of luck, basically. So there is that kind of element in both those scenarios, I think, that, you know, yes, the, the ship can be this kind of world, it can be this kind of uh, micro-society almost, uh, it, it, it can feel like quite a safe place, but surrounding it is this kind of deadly environment that you're never all that far away from. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, obviously there is a big link between multiple exploration and colonialism. Uh, and I think you know, sometimes you see hints of that. I mean, if you, for example, Tony and I had a discussion on our podcast some while ago about uh, the film Insurrection and the way that that film, in a kind of earlier draft, and in some small elements of the speeding of the final film, the Lord that was lost along the way, was inspired by Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness being a, you know, a novella which is absolutely about the kind of 
horrors of, of colonialism in a way. And again, it's uh, not set at sea, but set in the river. It's, you know, it's very much associated with this kind of, um, uh, you know, travel by water and the kind of possibilities of that. And written by Joseph Conrad, who was a sailor himself, and you know, a giant of the kind of uh, genre in musical literature. And I suppose what Star Trek tends to do is slightly soft pedal colonial side, if you know what I mean. And uh, it, it doesn't tend to engage with the, the really darker sides of colonialism, I think. You know, partly because the Federation is this kind of utopian future society. If we could rewrite our history and we would have been like the Federation, uh, our history would be a lot less real. And you know, the history of colonialism would be a lot less dark. Um, so I think it's a good question because often it's there and it's sort of, it's one of those things that Star Trek often approaches and doesn't quite uh, engage with. When you think of like the, the trailer for Beyond, there was that great line in the trailer for Beyond where Edward Selva's character says, This is where the frontier pushes back. And you thought watching that trailer, this sounds really interesting. This sounds like they're going to engage with some kind of knotty sort of historical idea of, of you know, the kind of the Federation as this kind of potentially colonialist enterprise. Uh, and you see it in Discovery as well with the Klingons saying similar things. But at the same time, I feel like that it's always just rhetoric, and it always seems quite hollow, and it's always kind of understandably Star Trek doesn't go there, uh, because that's not really what Star Trek is about. And I suppose with all these kind of cultural influences and historical influences, it's kind of a question of taking uh, a piece here or there, or a piece here or there, and not you don't bring the whole thing to Google with it, so you can almost uh, appropriate some of the language and certain kind of uh, discourse without bringing all of the kind of historical language. Before moving, I think that, um, I was wondering what you thought in terms of naval warfare was on the, on the, um, on Star Trek, also like the space Nine, which turns into a lot more warfare in it, as an episode of the ship, which feels very claustrophobic, like a, a submarine almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, um, what terms of naval literature do you think is it, or is it there when, when Star Trek gets a bit more uh, is more warfare documented than maybe there was in earlier series? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that, that can play into it. There's the episode, I'm trying to think which episode it is, of Deep Space Nine, where they're, the Defiant is really kind of screwed over, basically, and they have to do everything uh, in a kind of old-fashioned way. So you've got Nog like, repeating orders back and forth. Does anyone know the episode I'm talking about? It, it, for the uniform, right, yes, it is that one. Yeah, very good, thank you. Historians to have in a situation like this. <laughs> um, and that absolutely, you know, so in an episode like that, it feels very much like you've kind of gone back to this kind of multiple sort of naval tradition. You've got the kind of young, uh, you know, like the, the, the younger officer, you know, kind of playing that role of like literally kind of running down between decks and policy messages and stuff, very much as it would have been in the past. I mean, obviously, the space battles, it, uh, and, and not always going to be in that. You, this is why I say like Wrath of Khan for me feels like an old naval battle. Uh, a lot of the fighting in DS9 when it's much more um, fast-paced and quick and so on feels more like kind of aerial dog fighting. I feel less input to like some more, more you know, Spitfires engaging the enemy, that kind of fighting up there with these fast ships that can sort of whiz in and out. Uh, whereas I suppose previously in Star Trek, usually got one ship. Even if you think about the Enterprise D, there's always an encounter these two ships who have come together and they kind of hover there for a while and see if anything happens, which is much more like the kind of naval tradition. So I guess as the ships become more heavily powered, 
as the pace of apples increases, as the kind of technology for the visuals of apples, uh, you know, you sort of get to this idea of actually being reminded of how amazing those apples were that they put together in Deep Space Nine. I feel like in some ways the, the kind of cultural, it, it shifts in there, so you do sort of get away from that historical side. We might have time for one more quick question, but it's more personal. So this book is quite old, so like 17. Can you hear me? Yeah. So this is this book is quite old, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering, when you're looking back on it, you know, almost 20 years after writing it, are there any parts of the book that you think you wish you could have expanded this, or you think you wanted to be clear on this subject, and now 20 years later, as a follow-up, what do you think of the current state of the Star Trek series in fandom? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Funnily enough, um, I, I should have explained, the book is 20 years old originally. This version I've got here with me, if anyone likes to see me afterwards, I can, I can tell you what, uh, was updated for the 50th anniversary. Um, so, exactly what you're talking about is exactly what I did. So, I went back to it, and the, the book originally was published uh, just after DS9 went off the air, Voyager was still running. So it didn't cover the final season or so of Voyager, uh, obviously didn't cover Enterprise at all, didn't cover the Kelvin timeline at all. This updated version was sort of an up to date for the 50th, so it covered everything, it covers everything up to uh, just before Beyond. So that Beyond is too late to be included, but uh, covers uh, Star Trek 09 and Interdarkness, and a lot of stuff on Enterprise. So, so part of what I was interested in doing going back to it was sort of trying to work out how does Enterprise fit into this picture. And in some cases, as I said, actually Enterprise is kind of anomalous. In some ways, I think there's a lot of the other stuff that we talk about in the book. Enterprise represents a bit of a shift away from, it seems in the 90s like Star Trek was going in a particular direction. Uh, there was more engagement with something like religion, for example. By the time you get to Enterprise, there's been a complete amount turn on that. Religion is almost off the table altogether, apart from like suicide bombs, basically. Um, and I think there are a lot of ways in which Enterprise was quite a radical shift for Star Trek. So yeah, the book in its updated form, it does take all of that into account. But thank you for that question. And thank you all for listening. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been really nice to speak to you all today. Um, Duncan does have patents of the book available, um, just sort of for us if you'd like to get in and chat with him. But uh, and we'll, yeah, we'll be back at 2.15 um, for the start of the mystery to be we hope you've enjoyed primitive culture live at destination star trek this isn't the only thing that's been happening on the network this week so here's a listen about what's been happening elsewhere on trek fm Previously on Trek.fm, continuing mission. You know, another production. And now... Another fourth, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but now they are. And that in itself seems to me to be laying the, the roots or the basis for something that could grow bigger sometime in the future. I mean, let's get this one out of the way and then see where it goes <laughs> from there. But, but now you have a collective. Earl Grey. <laughs> Detecting Romulan life forms. Oh, sorry. Did you say there are Romulan life forms? 
Yeah. No, I said there was there 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 used to be. So used you, to be you, you detect like, fate signs. Wait, what have you guys created? <laughs> yes. <laughs> do, 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 do. Okay. So there are life forms. Interesting. Fascinating. I was 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 life forms. They're gone now, but there was traces of life forms that were present at the um, at the shuttlecraft. Oh my goodness! Dead Starfleet officers, dead Romulans. This isn't really helping much, is it? <laughs> Standard orbit. This episode is emblematic of how it wanted to grab the bull by the proverbial horns and and wrestle those kinds of issues to the ground and serve as an example of uh, of where a certain subset of people stood at the time in trying to react to the craziness of their own world and. And that's that's one of the things that I just continuously love about this show. The 602 Club. And, and that's the thing. I, I think you need a movie like this because most of the time when we think about astronauts and the, the these heroes who do these extraordinary things, um, we're painting with a very broad brush. Um, e- even in the right stuff, which, uh, l- like I said, it at least gives you some differences in the personalities of those guys. This is like, you know, the, this masterclass in the in the psychology of this one particular person. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. 
You're blended all right.